Today I'm continuing to teach on a series that I've entitled Effortless Change. And for those of you who are old partners with this ministry, you may realize that I've had a tape set, a three teaching set out on Effortless Change for a number of years. But we've now upgraded the teaching. I've put some new stuff with it and we've added a fourth teaching in the series. So this is actually a new, improved, expanded teaching on Effortless Change. The things that I've been teaching here, I believe, are just foundational. This is what makes me tick. I basically have been saying that if we would just take God's Word, and like it says in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, not let this book of the law depart out of our mouth, but meditate therein day and night, that we may observe to do according to all that is written therein, then we will make our way prosperous, and then we will have good success. That is so simple but profound. You will become what you think like. And the reason most people are having the problems that they're having is because they aren't controlling their thinking. And I can guarantee you, unless you do something specifically to keep your mind stayed on the Lord, there is just not a lot of things that really point us to the Lord and reflect God and draw us closer to Him. But the Word of God is pure light. And when you study the Word of God, it changes the way you think. It changes things. And so we've got to get to where the Word of God is dominating us. And that is basically the first teaching that I gave in this series. What I want to talk about now is to use John the Baptist as an example and just show you how John the Baptist was told by Jesus how to overcome his doubts. And this is so simple. If I just say it right up front, some of you think, all right, I've got that. But we're going to go through and I'm going to show you from Scripture and give you some things that I think will really help you. But uh, basically, Jesus pointed John the Baptist back to the Word of God to overcome his doubts. Now, that's simple. And like I said, most people think, ah, well, I know that. But again, I can tell you by dealing with people, I deal with lots and lots of people. I'm not one of these ministers that sneaks in after the praise and worship is nearly over and walks up on the stage and goes out afraid that I'll be contaminated if I talk to people. I talk to lots of people. At our meetings, I will spend two and three hours of personal ministry to people on a one-to-one basis outside of me preaching at the service. And so the point I'm making is I know by example dealing with lots of people that people come to me and they're struggling, they have doubt, they have fear, they have doubt because the doctor told them they're going to die and they're wanting me to help them overcome. They're just wanting me to wave their hand over them or to impart healing to them or to take away their fears and they're looking to me. And again, I'm not saying that I can't help a person, but it's wrong for us to look for our help in another person. The way that Jesus dealt with John the Baptist when he had doubts wasn't just to say, Oh, John, I know how you feel. Here, I'm going to take care of this. I will handle it from here. And he waved his hand and John the Baptist was free of doubt and guilt. That's not at all what happened. He referred him back to the Word of God. And I'm telling you that you wouldn't have to just follow people around from meeting to meeting and beg other people to pray for you and do things if you would take the Word of God and use it yourself. Now, don't take what I'm saying out of context. You could take that statement right there and say that I'm against you having someone else pray for you. No, I'm not. 
Because you know what? It takes time to get into the Word of God and begin to start having the life that's in the Word of God be released in your life. And during that period of time when you're sowing the seed and waiting for it to increase and grow to the point that it'll bring liberty in your life, don't be so stubborn or so proud that you won't go to someone and ask for help and ask them to pray for you. See, I'm not saying that. But I am saying those who just refuse to take personal responsibility and get into the Word of God and let the Word of God transform them. And they aren't they don't have any plans on doing it. Their life is just occupied with either work or pleasures or whatever. And they aren't going to make the Word of God a central part of their life. There's many people who try and substitute people like me or the pastor of a church. And you go to them and you want them to do their seeking of the Lord for you. I'm telling you, that's not going to work. It's just not going to work. While you're in the process of seeking the Lord and getting the mature and getting the Word of God working in you, if you come into a problem, don't be too proud to go ask for help. But if you aren't even trying and if you don't have any desire to try, your life is too busy to be in the Word of God and you're wanting to bootleg the gospel off of me or someone else, I'm telling you, it's not going to work. And I run a danger right here. I hope that you will have enough wisdom to understand what I'm saying. But even watching my program, watching Christian programming, I want you to do it. I'm glad that you're watching. I am not against my program. I'm not against anybody else's program. But I'm saying if all you're doing is receiving your nourishment from God after it's already been digested by somebody else and you aren't going to take it firsthand well, then you aren't ever going to grow and you aren't ever going to mature. That is not the way to do it. So the Lord dealt with John the Baptist when he had doubt by referring him back to the Word of God. He didn't just take care of it for him. He didn't wave his hand and solve the problem. He told John to go back to the Word of God. Man, that's awesome. I want to show you that out of Scripture. Here in Matthew chapter 11... It says in verse 2, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now I've just got to give a little bit of background on this before we go on, because some of you may not be aware of this. But John the Baptist was a man who was mightily used of God. He is the only person in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, who was baptized in the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. Before he was physically born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't even have that happen to him. This was a unique character, mightily anointed and blessed by God. And he had spent 30 years in preparation for his ministry in the desert. He never went through the normal things that people go through. He was totally focused on his calling. And then he came on the scene and in six months period of time, he turned not only the Jewish nation, but all of the nations surrounding Israel to an expectancy of the Messiah coming. He saw the greatest revival that had ever happened in history up until that time. Possibly the greatest revival that's ever taken place anywhere. This is the man who caused it. He was absolutely certain at one time that Jesus was the Messiah. And he sent his disciples after Jesus saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. 
when the Pharisees came out to John and tried to get him envious of Jesus and saying, don't you realize that Jesus has now got more disciples than you've got? He's baptized more people than you have baptized. Instead of getting envious, John responded by saying, I'm not even worthy to stoop over and undo his sandals. And John knew his place. He knew who Jesus was and he was absolutely committed to it. But after being in prison for an unspecified amount of time here in the Scriptures, I personally believe it was a minimum of six months, possibly even two years, that this fireball for God had been in prison and He had been forbidden to be able to speak and communicate to His followers and influence people. After that period of time, this hardship began to wear on Him. And so when John the Baptist sent two of his disciples and he said, Are you he that should come or do we look for another? You know, this wasn't a newcomer to Jesus that was asking this question. This wasn't somebody who hadn't had this question answered before. This is the man who knew beyond any shadow of a doubt at one time that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And yet, now, here he is doubting that Jesus was the Messiah. This is nothing but pure doubt. This is a major fault, a major problem on John the Baptist's part because at one time he had been absolutely certain of who Jesus was. And if you add to this, if you were to turn over to uh, Matthew chapter um, 3 and Luke chapter 3, both of them record the ministry of John the Baptist And specifically, they say that John the Baptist was given a sign by God. God told him that upon whom he saw the Spirit of God descending in the shape of a dove and remaining upon him, that that would be the Messiah. So John the Baptist had a visible sign. And sure enough, when Jesus was water baptized by John the Baptist in the river Jordan, the Holy Spirit descended in the shape of a dove in the form of a dove, and he also heard an audible voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So John the Baptist not only had the Scriptures, he not only had the witness in his heart, he had an audible and a visible sign. How much do you need to be able to believe? That's a really good question. There's people that you think, if I was one of Jesus' disciples, I wouldn't have had struggles with this. If I was to see a vision, if I was to have a tangible tingling in my hands, if I could hear an audible voice from God, it would take care of this. The uh, uh, John had every one of those things happen, and yet here he was doubting. One of the points that needs to be brought out of this is that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. Every one of us is capable of doubt. And when you get put in a negative situation over a long period of time, the tendency is to doubt. And circumstances, negative circumstances, tend to just beat faith out of you and cause doubt to come. I believe that's exactly what happened with John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been in prison for at least six months, possibly as much as two years at this period of time. And you got to remember that this is a guy who was just... I mean, John the Baptist was a stark, raving, mad fanatic. He was wild. He was bold. He was fearless. He pronounced judgment against Herod because Herod had taken his brother's wife while his brother was still alive. 
and made that woman his wife. It was an ungodly alliance, and it could have cost him everything. It did cost him everything. He was put in prison for up to two years. He was killed because of it, and yet he was fearless in proclaiming what was right and what was wrong. This was a bold man that just, I mean, he lived for speaking God's truth, seeing people change. And he came on the scene and in six months period of time changed the entire nation. This guy was a high energy uh, person who just, you know, he loved to be in the center of things. He loved to be there speaking forth. He was a bony fingered prophet. Everything that you could conjure up about that, that's the way John was. And yet he had been silenced and put in prison. And I'm sure he probably talked to the prison guards or somebody, but he was kept physically restrained from being able to fulfill his ministry. And I tell you what, the scripture says in, uh, I believe it's Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I believe that John the Baptist, hope was to be out there preaching the gospel, turning people to the Lord, preparing the way for the Lord, and it just didn't come to pass. And it began to war on him. Plus, here's the second thing that I believe was involved in this is that if you read the scriptures during the time of Jesus, the people didn't have a clear understanding that the coming of the Lord would be split into two advents is what we call it. The first coming of Jesus that culminated in His crucifixion and then His resurrection and ascension. But then there is this intervening period of time which now has been about 2,000 years and we're looking for the second coming of the Lord. In the Old Testament, this was prophesied, but it was all run together. Like, I'm not going to take time to turn over there, but in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to do all of these things. And it talks about things that Jesus quoted in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It was definitely a prophecy of the Messiah that was fulfilled when He came to this earth. But then it goes on to say at the very end, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And before Jesus got to that portion of the scripture, he stopped. You know why? Because that portion of what was prophesied about him is going to come to pass at his second return when he brings judgment to the earth. But if you were to just read the Old Testament Scripture without the benefit of the New Testament commentary, it would be easy to run those things together. So anyway, what I'm saying is all of the prophecies of the Messiah basically gave the first and the second coming of Jesus like it was one event. And people didn't clearly understand this. And so because of that, the people during Jesus' day really anticipated that not only would Jesus come and reconcile us back unto God, but that He would also institute the kingdom, put down the Roman rule, judge the ungodly, usher in the kingdom of God that physically would rule on the earth. And that's what they were expecting. Now, I personally believe, and I could spend more time trying to verify this, but I'll just put it out right now as andeology. You can go study it out on your own. But I personally believe that John was of that same opinion. And this is one of the reasons that John began to doubt that Jesus was the Christ. He at one time had had no doubt. He had an audible voice, a visible sign, but he wasn't seeing things play out the way that he thought they would. He thought Jesus would have come and have destroyed the Romans. He thought Jesus would have come and have taken him out of prison. 
He thought Jesus would have brought in the kingdom of God physically ruling upon this earth. Those things weren't happening. It could have been up to two, two and a half year period of time. And yet Jesus hadn't hadn't made a political statement yet. He hadn't tried to reform society. He was just talking to individuals about their personal relationship to God. And again, going back to this verse in Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If his hope wasn't exactly right on, if he was like everybody else in Scripture who said, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time to Israel? If he didn't have a clear understanding that there was going to be this church age intervening in between the first and the second coming of the Lord, well then, John the Baptist, this negative experience could have caused his heart to sink and become sick because hope deferred makes the heart sick. So the lack of seeing his hope for uh, you know, the kingdom of God coming to pass, the fact that he was in negative circumstances, locked up in prison, I'm sure it wasn't, a piece of cake in those days to be in prison the way it is sometimes here. And uh, all of these negative circumstances working together uh, just caused John the Baptist to really go back and reconsider. Have I heard from God correctly? Did I miss God? And you know, if you're in negative circumstances, if things are going bad around you, if your hope has been deferred and you aren't seeing the things come to pass the way that you thought you should... If you aren't careful, you'll fall into this same trap. John the Baptist was the greatest man that had ever lived on the face of the earth up until this time. Jesus goes on to say that, and we'll cover those scriptures uh, in subsequent teaching as we go through this. John the Baptist was the greatest man that had ever lived, and yet he was subject to doubt. John the Baptist, when he got into a pressure situation, began to doubt things that had been confirmed to him so emphatically that you wonder, how could a person doubt that? It just shows us that anybody is capable of doubt. You can't turn off the engine and just coast. It's like an airplane. You have to maintain that thrust to be able to maintain that lift and that aerodynamics. You can't turn off the engines. It's like a helicopter or something that when the blades quit turning, the engine goes off, that thing has the aerodynamics of a rock. It's going to fall. You must maintain that power and that lift. You must maintain seeking the Lord. Any of us, all of us, are subject to doubt. If John the Baptist could doubt, a man who is filled with the Holy Spirit before he was even born, a man who walked with God constantly, a man who caused the greatest revival in the history of the world, a man who had an audible and a visible sign from God and at one time had zero doubt. If pressures and circumstances, negative pressures and circumstances could make him doubt over a period of time, it can happen to you. You can't just seek God every once in a while, just when you get your back against the wall and then seek Him so that you can get deliverance and then go back to your carnal ways. You know what? We need to be on guard. We need to watch. We need to recognize that this unbelief is like gravity. It's just always pulling. And you can't ever just... It it never goes off. You may be able to rise above it if you are really applying the power of God in your life, but you can't turn it off and just coast. The moment you start coasting, you are coming down. You may float and go further than somebody else, but the moment you turn off that power of faith, the engine of faith, you are headed down. You need to maintain your focus on the Lord 
Because if John the Baptist could doubt, you could doubt. So you have to fight against this. I've read already from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, where John the Baptist sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask, is he really the Christ? And in Matthew's gospel, immediately after asking that question, it says in verse 4, Jesus answering, answered and said unto them, Go and show God, John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached unto them, and blessed is he who, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, but it's just that it left out a minor detail which the same account recorded over in Luke's gospel adds this event, and I think it makes all of the difference in the world. You know, uh, some of you aren't aware of this, but this is my Life for Today study Bible right here that I'm using, and this is over a 600-page book on just the four gospels. And one of the things that's unique in this study Bible, apart from my footnotes and references, and there's some great study tools, but one of the things is that I've actually taken the Gospels and I've organized them, not just like going through Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and John, but we have taken all of the Scriptures in the four Gospels that pertain to one incident and we have put them right here on one page. And what this allows you to do, it allows you to have a comparative understanding of the gospel. And the point that I'm making right here, you won't get this if you read Matthew by itself and then Luke. But when you put them together, you'll find out that over here in Luke chapter 7, let me go back and read some of the exact same story just recorded by a different gospel author, and you can see some noticeable differences here. Nothing that contradicts, but it just adds new information. In verse 18, this is Luke 7, 18, it says, And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. If you went back to the previous verses, what this was talking about, it was showing John the Baptist about all the miracles and all of the people beginning to proclaim that Jesus was the Christ. And yet, John the Baptist, when he heard these claims and all the miraculous things, he had such nagging doubts that he sent messengers to Jesus. There's an important point there. I hadn't got time to make it, but again, those are some of the things that you see through this comparative um, study of the Word. In verse 19, it says, And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And when the men were come unto him, they said, John Baptist has sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? And in verse 21, this is very revealing. It's not contradictory to Matthew's account, but it just puts it in different words. By putting them together, you see a different, um, you get a different impression of what really happened. In verse 21, it says, And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind he gave sight. And then in verse 22, it says, Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way, tell John what you've seen and heard, etc. Now John, uh, excuse me, Matthew's account of this instance with John just said that Jesus answering said unto them, Go uh, and show John again those things which you see and hear, etc. But in Luke's account, it said that before he answered John the Baptist's disciples in that same hour, 
He cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and unto many that were blind He gave sight. It says in that same hour, implying that for nearly an hour, Jesus didn't answer John the Baptist's disciples, but He performed all of these miracles, and then He told the disciples to go back and tell John what He had seen of these exact same miracles. Now that's a major difference. In other words, instead of just giving an answer to the disciples and say, go back and tell him what you've seen and heard. It specifically says Jesus performed every one of these miracles and the uh, specifics about exactly which miracle it was he performed is going to become very uh, critical in understanding this story just a little bit later. But he performed all of these miracles and then told John's disciples to go back and tell him this. And if you read over in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 11, in verse 7, it says, And as they departed, talking about the messengers that John the Baptist had sent, as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, and he said all of these complimentary things. Over in Luke's account, Luke chapter 7, verse 24, it says, And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. Now again, it's just a little different way of saying it, but it's very critical. And here's the point that I'm trying to make through all of this. When John sent these disciples to Jesus, Jesus, first of all, for about an hour's period of time, didn't even answer John's disciples. He didn't give them a straight answer. What he did was go out and open up blind eyes, raised people from the dead, cast devils out of people, lame people walked, Deaf people heard. He did all of these miracles in the space of one hour. You know, I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen people raised from the dead. I've seen people come out of wheelchairs. I've seen miracles happen, but I've never seen all of that happen in the space of one hour. I've seen multiple miracles in one hour, but I mean the the fact that the Lord crammed, raising people from the dead, blind eyes being opened, deaf people hearing, lame walking, did all of this in one hour. Imagine what kind of an impact that would have on you. And then it says, after the disciples' word departed. In other words, the point that I think is significant here is after John's disciples were out of earshot and they couldn't bring him back what Jesus was about to say because they were already gone, then is when Jesus began to say these things that in my way of thinking would have actually been more beneficial to John than the answer that Jesus gave. Now just stop and put yourself in a position where here you are one of the central figures in the nation. People were looking to you for leadership. At one time, hundreds of thousands of people were saying you were the most important figure in the entire nation. You had had that kind of a following. And here you are in a crisis hour doubting the very things that had made you the instrument that God had used that way. You were at your lowest period of time. You were in prison. It looked like you were going to be killed at any time. And as it turned out, John the Baptist was killed. He was beheaded. And in this low period of time, you come to the person who has taken your place, who has succeeded, who you promoted. You actually pushed them to the forefront. You're the one that drew all of the crowds. And then you told the crowds to follow him. Jesus didn't come and spend time drawing crowds the way that John did. John drew all the crowds together and then turned them over to Jesus. And so here's John in a crisis period coming to Jesus and asking for help. 
And Jesus didn't even look like He helped the disciples at first. He ignored them. He performed these miracles. And then He said to these disciples, He says, Go tell John what things you have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf ear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. You know, when I first read these passages of Scripture, I actually felt sorry for John. I thought, like, Jesus didn't really do much to help John the Baptist here. You know, here's another thing that I haven't mentioned, but if you stop and think about this, John the Baptist was separated under the gospel from his mother's womb. He didn't have a normal childhood. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have children. He didn't go. He didn't have friends outside of anything. His whole life, the scripture says he was in the deserts until the day that he began his ministry. That means he had just been separated unto God. There was no plan B or plan C. He had never had any other enjoyments outside of his calling. This man was just totally separated unto God from his mother's womb. He was totally focused on this. And if Jesus wasn't the Christ, now think about this. That meant that John the Baptist had squandered this anointing that was on his life. If Jesus wasn't truly the Christ, John had said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. His own disciples had come and wanted to follow Jesus, but they were torn in their allegiance. And he said, Follow him. He must increase. I must decrease. He sent his own disciples to follow after Jesus. John the Baptist, if Jesus wasn't the Christ had made not only a huge personal mistake that rendered his whole life a waste and a failure, but he had taken this anointing on him that no one else in the history of the world had ever had, and he sent not only his disciples, but the entire nation, multiple nations, after the wrong man. He could have been an instrument of the devil instead of the instrument of God that he was separated to be. This wasn't just a flippant doubt that he had, wondering, have I made a mistake? This was a crisis situation that there had never been anything like this in John's life. And how did Jesus respond? Just saying, go tell him what you've seen and heard. He didn't even answer his messengers at first, but told him after an hour of curing people and doing things, go tell him what you've seen and heard. And then look at what he said after the disciples were departed. And this is the way it makes it clear over in Luke chapter 7, verse 24. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Of course, this is a sarcastic statement. What he's doing is saying, what drew thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people out into the desert to listen to this man? What was it? Was it the reeds blowing in the wind? Of course, that's a sarcastic statement. The reeds had been out there for thousands of years and the crowds had never gone out there. It wasn't nature. It wasn't because the desert was so beautiful. It was because there was a man there who was on fire for God. And I promise you, if you catch on fire for God, the world's going to come watch you burn. This man was on fire for God. He was anointed by God. His, God's words were in his mouth. And what Jesus is doing is giving him a great compliment saying, what was it that brought tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out into the desert? In verse 25, he says, But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled 
and live delicately are in king's courts. Again, he's making a sarcastic statement. Was it uh, John the Baptist's clothes? Was it his his flashy clothes, patent leather shoes? Was it his, uh, you know, Pentecostal hairdo? Was it his, you know, $500 suits that drew everybody there? John didn't have any of those things. You know, John the Baptist, it says, was clothed in camel hair. And I personally don't know this, but I remember back during the Jesus movement, the hippie movement, uh, I remember reading in one of those magazines that nothing smelled worse than camel hair unless it was the camel hair when it got wet. And John the Baptist wore camel hair, and plus he spent half of his time in the River Jordan baptizing people. So this guy was not a fashion statement. On top of that, he had a long beard. He, had, he ate locusts and wild honey. I could just see hunt, his beard matted with honey, having a, you know, a locust leg someplace in it, his hair messed up, wearing camel hair that smelled, all these kind of things. I guarantee you it was not his clothes. It wasn't all of those kind of things that drew people out into the wilderness. That's the point that Jesus is making. And so he says in verse 26, Luke 7, 26, he says, But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Now that's a quotation from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and that was universally understood to be concerning the prophet who was to prepare the way for the Messiah, a very high position of authority and leadership. And Jesus was making it very clear that John the Baptist was this man prophesied in the Old Testament. And then he said in verse 28, For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there hath not, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, I've referred to this already, but think about this. This means Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, on and on you could go. Any Old Testament figure, Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest of all of those. Now, those are some pretty powerful words to be spoken by a man who was the most popular figure in the nation at that time. And if you could put yourself into John the Baptist's position, and if you were rotting in prison, feeling lonely, feeling like, does anybody care? What about me? I had a six-month ministry, and then I've been rotting in prison for years. Has anybody, does anybody remember me? Does anybody care? What would it be like if you sent to the most influential, most popular religious figure in the nation asking for help, How do you think it would help you if he was to stand up and take his pulpit, say get on television and start talking about you and say this is the greatest person that has ever lived. He's greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, greater than Abraham, greater than anybody. You know what? If you were to go saying things like that about a person who was struggling, most people would think, boy, would that ever be encouraging. And see, this is what I was thinking. When I saw this and I saw the crisis situation that John the Baptist was in, and here's Jesus, in a sense, ignored him for an hour, healed these people, and then said, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard, and he'll be blessed if he isn't offended in me. 
when I first saw that, I thought, God, that just doesn't seem to meet the need. And then after the disciples of John were gone, you begin to say all these complimentary things. Why didn't you say that while his disciples were there? Wouldn't that have blessed him more? You know, I remember an instance one time where when I was young in the ministry, I was just getting started. I was pastoring a church in Seagaville, Texas. And I mean, people were staying away from my church by the thousands. It was just amazing, the crowds that didn't come. And I was struggling and I wasn't seeing very much happen. I went to this conference at Calvary Cathedral in Fort Worth, Texas, where Bob Nichols was the pastor. And it was an ICFCM meeting. They had Kenneth Copeland there, Kenneth Hagan, all of the big names. And all of these people were sitting on the front. Gifts of the Spirit were flowing. They were all being prophesied and told all of these things and encouraged. There was 2,000 people in the auditorium. And nobody knew who I was. And I was sitting, they had these long rows, probably 20 to 30 seats in one row. I was dead in the center of one of those things, right in the center of the auditorium. I mean, I was just a a speck, you know, among this huge crowd. And I was feeling so insignificant and I was thinking to myself, here's all of these leaders up there getting words of encouragement. There's not anybody in this auditorium that needs to be encouraged more than I do. And I was feeling lonely and, uh, you know, all of these negative things. And anyway, they said, go around and shake somebody's hand and encourage them. And the pastor of that church, Bob Nichols, I had met him one time before and I hadn't got time to explain, but it was a negative meeting. I mean, it was only because Bob was a gracious person that he even liked me after that first meeting. It wasn't something that I was proud of. It wasn't good. And so here I was in the clump of all these people... Bob Nichols got off that platform, pushed his way through all those people, pushed his way all the way down the aisle, found me. I mean, it was obvious he was looking for me. He started hugging me and just saying, don't quit. Don't quit. Hold on. God loves you. Don't quit. He didn't know me. He didn't know my situation. But I tell you what, I knew that God had had singled me out from all of those thousands of people there And you know what? That encouraged me. That blessed me. And as I was reading this story about John the Baptist, I thought, why didn't Jesus do something like that for John? Why didn't he say all these complimentary things about John being the greatest person who had ever lived in history up until that time? Why didn't he say that while John's disciples were there? Seems to me like that would have been more beneficial than simply going out and performing some miracles and then telling the disciples to go back and tell John what you've seen and heard and he'll be blessed if he's not offended. And anyway, I struggled with this for years. And finally, one day, I'd forgotten all about Matthew chapter 11. I hadn't totally forgotten it, but it wasn't in the forefront of my mind. I was just reading through Scripture. And listen to what this says over in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 6. This is a prophecy that was given to the messenger who would come before Jesus and prepare his way. And if I had time, you could take this in its context and you could prove that. But listen what the scriptures told this messenger who was going to prepare the way before Jesus. It says in verse 3, Isaiah 35, 3, Strengthen ye the weak hands, confirm the feeble knees, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, He will come and save you. Then, then what? 
Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break forth, and streams in the desert. And you know what? All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit reminded me of what Jesus had said to John's disciples. He spent an hour doing these miracles. And then he said, like in Matthew chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go show John again those things which you do, hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit connected these two. And you know what I believe Jesus did? He waited to say all of these emotional, complimentary things about John. After John's disciples were gone, when John's disciples were there, the answer he gave them was to perform these miracles right before their eyes. And then he said, go tell John what you have seen. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. You know what Jesus did? Jesus basically fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6. Now again, those verses say the eyes of the blind would be open. That was one of the miracles that Jesus performed in that hour. And that's specifically one of the miracles that he told John's disciples to go back and tell him about. Then it says in Isaiah 35 5, it says the ears of the deaf would be unstopped. It specifically mentions the deaf hearing. In verse 6, Isaiah 35, 6, Then shall the lame man leap as a heart. He talked about the lame walking. That was one of the miracles that he performed. And the tongue of the dumb shall sing. It talked about that. And, and so everything that was prophesied about the Messiah over an entire ministry, over a period of time, Jesus fulfilled every one of these miracles in one hour period of time. Plus, he threw in raising someone from the dead just so that nobody could think that these were coincidental. In one hour's period of time, Jesus did everything that was prophesied concerning the miracles that he would do. He did them in this one hour period of time. Plus, he added raising someone from the dead. And then he said, go back and tell those messengers, tell John, the one who sent you, that I have done all of these things and he'll be blessed if he will just believe. You know, I believe with all of my heart, John the Baptist knew the Scriptures. When the Pharisees came to him and said, Who are you? Are you the Christ? He said, No, I'm not the Christ. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. You know, that was from Isaiah chapter 40, just five chapters after. John quoted from a number of passages all around there. And you've got to remember that back in the Torah the Jewish Bible that the uh, Jews used, they didn't have a Bible like we have with chapters and verse. They had scrolls of paper. They were hard to find something. They weren't divided into chapters and verses. It was all one letter, this book of Isaiah. So for John to have quoted from what we call Isaiah chapter 40, that was very close in that letter to what we call Isaiah chapter 35. I believe it is proof positive that John the Baptist had read these verses. He knew what God had prophesied the Messiah would do when he came. And I believe that when these messengers came back, they may not have understood. But when they came back to John and they said, Well, 
He didn't answer our question directly whether he was the Christ, but what he did, he made us wait an hour. During this period of time, he opened up the blind eyes. He opened up deaf ears. People that couldn't talk, talk. People who couldn't walk, walk. We saw a man raised from the dead, and he told us to come back and tell you what he had done, and you'd be blessed if you'd just believe. I believe that when they delivered that message to John, you know what happened? The Holy Spirit connected those dots. The Holy Spirit connected what Isaiah had prophesied that the Messiah would do and what Jesus had done, and all of a sudden the light went off. And John realized, you know what? How could I doubt that this was the Messiah? He has performed everything that the Word of God prophesied He would do. No other man has ever raised people from the dead like this, opened up blind eyes, opened up deaf ears, seen the lame walk especially not in one hour period of time. I believe that the Holy Spirit all of a sudden like a flood came in on John the Baptist's doubts and he through the Word of God and seeing the Word literally fulfilled, all of a sudden I believe his doubts were gone and John the Baptist began to praise and thank God. So you know what was really happening here? Instead of Jesus dishonoring John, and not giving him this emotional response and just telling him something to tide him over. It was just the opposite. Jesus honored John so much, he refused to give him just an emotional response and instead referred him back to the Word of God. Man, that is powerful. You know the emotional things that we go for where we just want somebody to put their arm around us and cry with us? That might make you feel good, and some of you are going to resent me saying these things, but I tell you what, that's not going to help you long term. It might help you over a hump. I'm not saying that we don't show compassion for people, but in the long term, you need to know the truth. You need to get hold of the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is a sword of the Spirit. That's how you fight off depression and discouragement and despair. And yet many of us are just kind of down there wallowing in our, our tears and wanting God to come down to our level and help us and say, oh, it really is bad. You know, a friend of mine, Dave Duell, we were at a minister's conference one time and he was up really encouraging people and he called forth people who had been discouraged and he was going to pray for them. And this couple came up that, I mean, you didn't have to ask them If they were discouraged, it was written all over them. Their body language, they were stooped over, they were crying, they were miserable. And I hate to laugh at this. I know some of you think I'm terrible for doing this, but it was really funny. And they came forward, they were discouraged, and Dave was going to pray for them. And he comes up and he just looks at them. And I mean, they were miserable. And Dave stands back and he says, Thus saith the Lord, don't feel bad. If I wasn't God, I'd be discouraged too. (laughs) When he said that, I guarantee you, it encouraged me. It put, you know, our problems into its proper context, and I thought it was hilarious. I'm not sure that the couple rejoiced at it that much. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. Some of us honestly think that our problems are so bad that even God's wringing his hands and wondering how he's going to take care of this. Your problem is nothing compared to God. But yet many times we're wanting God to come down and cry with us and talk about, oh, I know it's so hard. I'm I'm grieving with you. But you know what? That's not true. The Lord has already conquered. He is victorious. Now, He has compassion and love towards you if you're discouraged. I'm not 
discrying that. But I'm saying that instead of us wanting just some kind of an emotional thing that is going to make you feel good for a day and then you have to have another emotional fix, what you need to do is take the truth of God's Word and whether you feel like it or not, stand up and begin to start saying, I am an overcomer. I don't care what it feels like. I don't care what somebody has said, what has happened to me. I am going to rise again. I am a victor and not a victim. And you start taking the word of God. Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph through Christ Jesus. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And you start speaking the word and building yourself up. In a sense, I believe that that's what Jesus did for John. Instead of just telling him these things that John is the greatest prophet that has ever lived, why did you go out into the desert? Why were hundreds of thousands of you out there in the desert? Was it because you were looking at the reeds? Were you looking for somebody dressed in fancy clothes? Nope. Instead of saying all of these nice things, you know what he did? He referred John back to the prophecies that he had known, that God used to call him to the ministry and to put him on the path. The Word of God that at one time had motivated John. And for 30 years, these prophecies kept him focused and kept him on track. But in a crisis situation, he took his eyes off of the Word of God and he started going by looking at his surroundings. He was in prison. It looked like he was going to die and eventually he did die. And because of this, John just became discouraged. It's like Peter in the 14th chapter of the book of John when he walked on the water to go to Jesus. As long as he looked at Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith, he walked on water. He did something that no other person outside of Jesus had ever done. He was walking on water. It was miraculous. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to look at the wind and the waves, he began to sink. Well, John the Baptist had taken his eyes off of the Word, off of the truths that God had instilled in his heart. And he was looking at his prison. He was looking at the fact he was facing death. He was looking and it looked like that Herod, this tyrant, was prevailing and that he was losing. He was looking at these things and he had lost sight of what the Word of God said. And Jesus referred him back to the Word, the Word that he was well acquainted with. And I believe when that happened, the Holy Ghost rose up on the inside of him. The Scripture doesn't tell us what the response of John is, but we know that he remained faithful to the end. Eventually, Herod beheaded him, and there was no whimpering, there was no crying, there was no repentance or renouncing his beliefs. John stayed strong, and it's my personal belief that when Jesus responded to him this way, that he recognized, how could I have doubted? Here's what the Word says. And regardless of what his emotions felt like, he got back on what the truth was. Man, to me, that does something for me. I don't know if you've understood or fully appreciated what I'm saying. But you know, there's times that I just feel, if I was to go by feelings, there's times that I feel like running. There's times that I feel like quitting. And one of the things that has worked in my life that has changed me is I've just learned that I don't go by how I feel. You know, when I was told that my son had died, we were woken up at 4.15 in the morning and we had to get up and get dressed. took us an hour and 15 minutes to drive from our house into Colorado Springs. And uh, we lived so far out our cell phones didn't work. During that period of time, I didn't have any way to check Immediately when I got that call, I spoke that the first report's not the last report. My wife and I agreed and prayed. We called my son back to life. 
but he had been dead for nearly five hours at that time. And you know what? On the way in, from the time we got the call to when we got in and saw that he had been raised from the dead, and I mean, it was absolutely miraculous, I began to start having some feelings, some negative thoughts, feelings of grief and things like that. And you know what? I just, praise God, it's not really to my credit, it's the Holy Spirit, and He spent a lot of time training and teaching me, but praise God, when I started having these negative thoughts, I cried out to God, and God started sharing His Word with me, brought me back to Scriptures, showed me things. And because of that, you know what? The Word of God rose up on the inside of me, and I literally went against those feelings. I don't care how I felt. You could just imagine if somebody was to tell you that your son was dead, how would you feel? What kind of things would run through your mind? Well, I had everything going through me that probably would go through you, but the Word of God rose up, and by the grace of God, I never said anything contrary to what the Word said. And actually, as I got to praising God, my emotions turned around and got in agreement with God, and I actually started rejoicing and praising God. I'm telling you, you can get to a place to where even though your emotions are pulling you this way, you know that the Word says this, and you can get to a place to where the Word of God is more real to you than what you feel. And when you do that, that's what the Bible calls faith. That's what the Bible calls maturity. And I tell you, we've got a tremendous amount of people who are claiming to be Christians that the truth is all the devil's got to do is give you the slightest little hint of emotion contrary to what the Word says, and you just fold up like a $2 suitcase and fall apart. I mean, the Bible says that you have love, joy, and peace, and yet all somebody's got to do is just criticize you, say the slightest little thing, the pastor not speak to you as he walked down the hall, and you begin to start crying because somebody neglected you and somebody said something about you or ignored you and hasn't given you the attention that you need. I'm telling you, we need to pull our thumb out of our mouth. We need to recognize that the Word of God is what's supposed to work in our life. And if you are in a crisis situation and doubting the way that John the Baptist was, and you're going to the Lord, and if you're asking God to give you some emotional deal, to have an angel appear, a goosebump go up and down your spine, you want somebody to call you and say, oh, I think you're awesome. If you're looking for those kind of responses, I'm telling you, you're looking in the wrong place. What you need to do is go to the Word of God and find out, are you doing what God told you to do? Do you have a promise? Has God led you to move in these directions? If He has, then you take the Word of God, and I don't care how you feel. I don't care if every demon in hell comes out against you. If it hair lips every demon in hell, just keep doing what God told you to do, and don't back off of it and get to where the Word of God becomes absolute authority in your life. You aren't going to back off of it regardless of what anybody has done or hasn't done. And when you get that kind of an attitude and the Word of God begins to dominate you, then you know what? You're going to overcome doubt. You're going to be walking in faith. Faith isn't always. As a matter of fact, I probably could go as far as to say that faith is seldom a feeling. Faith is very, very seldom where you just feel this surge of boldness. Now, I think that sometimes it is. Sometimes there's a gift of faith. 
And God will gift you with some things. But the majority of the time when I've seen great, great things happen in my life, I've stepped out and yet my emotions were wavering. And I just chose not to go by my emotions. I chose not to be bound to them and I knew what God's Word says and I ministered from my heart and stood on what the Word of God said, sometimes with my knees shaking. But you know what that is? That's faith. Some people think that faith is having an absence of any problems or any doubts or any fears. It's really not. It's just learning how to reject those things and not let them control you and take a stand on the Word of God. When I first got started seeking the Lord, I had come from a background that didn't believe that God did miraculous things today and that there were no such thing as angelic visitations or an audible voice from God or supernatural unctions from God. Those things didn't exist. Well, when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit and began to study the Word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I realized that those things didn't pass away with the apostles. I began to hear testimonies of other people And I actually began to start seeking to see an angel or to have God speak to me in an audible voice. Or I remember it was, I think, Kenneth Hagin that had a burning in the palms of his hands and he'd put his hands on a person, one on the front and one on the back. And uh, I forget which way it was, but if the burning in his hand jumped, well, then it was, you know, like a healing. If it didn't jump, it just burned in his hands, then it was like a deliverance. I may have had that wrong. But anyway, the point I'm making is that there was a supernatural manifestation. And I I don't know for sure about other people's stuff, but I do know that those things can happen. And so I began to pray for them. And I began to start saying, God, how come I've never had any of these supernatural things happen? And basically, this is when the Lord showed me this truth that I've taught about how to overcome doubt. And he showed me these things about John the Baptist. And the reason Jesus didn't respond to John in a lower form on an emotional level, but instead raised him up to this level of speaking the word to him was because of God's respect for John the Baptist. Just because he honored him so much, not because he honored him so little that he referred him back to the word. And I began to see that the word of God is actually the highest way to respond to the Lord. Now, I've got some scriptures I'm going to share with you, but in my testimony, when I saw this, you know what happened? I turned the other direction. And I said, God, I want your best. And if it honors you more for me to just take your word and trust your word and for you to quicken scripture to me and for that to be the way that I hear from you instead of having a vision or an audible voice... If that is more honoring to you, then praise God, I'll be glad to go that way. And I quit praying for something special. Now, I've had the Lord give me dreams, which I think in a sense, uh, there are scriptures that talk about a night vision. I think a dream can be very real and from God. And so I've had dreams that I really felt like God spoke to me. But I've never had what people call an open vision where I was awake, where... My eyes were open and yet I was seeing into the supernatural realm. I've never heard an audible voice from God. I've never had most of the things that many people uh, claim to have seen or heard. And I'm not discrediting that. I'm just saying that, you know what, I have learned to relate to God through the Word. And I really believe that that's God's best. Because Satan can also appear in the spiritual realm. You can see things that could, could lead you astray. But if you go through the Word of God, I guarantee you Satan is not going to be able 
to discredit God's Word. God's Word is the acid test, the number one way of hearing from God. And again, there's a balance to that. I hadn't got time to say all those things today. But I'm just saying that the Lord may have not answered your prayer in the way that you've been asking to where you could just have Him come down and cry with you and say it really is bad and give you an emotional response that would make you feel better. He may not have answered you that way because He loves you so much. Not because He loves you so little, but it may be because He's trying to bring you up to a higher level And He's wanting you to get beyond just an emotional thing and receive some substance from Him through the Word of God. Look at these passages of Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, this is the Apostle Peter speaking, and he said here that he was close to his death, and so he felt an urgency to put the people in remembrance of things that he had said to them before. And so in verse 12, this is 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, talking about his physical body, to stir you up by by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, talking about his body. He was talking about his death, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. So in verse 12 through 15, basically what he's saying is, he knows he's going to die. He wants these people to be stirred up through remembering the things that he had told them. So he was going to write this down. He was going to make it so they'd always be able to go over that. And that's what we're reading. And then in verse 16, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. Now again, what Peter is trying to do is to verify to these people that the things I'm telling you aren't things I dreamed up. This isn't something that came as a result of me eating pizza. It's not just something that came out of my own heart. This was imparted to me by God. And to verify that, he says, we saw the glory of God. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw the glory of God come out of Jesus so bright that it was like the sun. And not only that, but we saw a cloud come over Jesus, the glory cloud of God that used to inhabit the Old Testament tabernacle. This glory cloud overshadowed Jesus. So there was a visible representation of the glory of God and the glory cloud of God. And then out of the cloud, there came a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, the reason that Peter is saying all of these things is to tell them that, look, these aren't our own ideas. We didn't dream this up. We experienced it. We saw it. We heard it. He's trying to validate his message and say, I know that what I'm saying is from God. You know, a comparison of this is that if I was to come to your city and if I was to hold a crusade there or what we call a gospel truth seminar and if I was to come on television and say, I've had an angel appear to me and this happened and I saw this and I was caught up into heaven and if I had some tangible proof 
I don't know what that could be, but if there was some way I could prove it, if I could show you something that I got while I was wherever I went, if somehow or another I could do all of these things to try and validate that, hey, I have heard from God, I've got a message from God, and I'm going to come to your city and deliver that message, be there Friday night, 7 o'clock p.m. If I was to do something like that, did you know that the crowds at our meetings would go up tremendously? But when I come and say, we're going to come preach the Word of God, I'm going to share truths with you that God has shared with me. We have hundreds, in some cases, thousands of people come. But you know what? We don't have near the people come that if I was to say, I've had a vision, I had this Word from God, I've got this, you know, some people went by these stigmatas that people get in their hand. There was a period of time a few years back in the body of Christ where a woman claimed to have feathers fall down out of the heavens and things. And later somebody videoed and actually showed her pulling these feathers out from her sleeve. And people have claimed that their hands will sweat with anointing and it's the anointing oil. Some people have claimed that there's golden flakes and they get them in their Bible and I've had people show that to me. And that just makes the Word of God so much more real. See, if I was to come up with some physical, tangible thing like that, there's a lot of people that would say, man, let's go. But I say, I'm going to come share the Word of God. Not as many people are as as excited about that. And yet, that is the wrong attitude. Actually, hearing from God through the Word of God is better than having gold dust, feathers, anointing oil, goosebumps, glory clouds, angelic visitations... Anything else, nothing trumps or supersedes the Word of God. We need to change our thinking in this area. And I tell you, there's a lot of people today that if you were to put two doors up there, one of them say the Word of God and the other one would say some special manifestation. Most people would want this special manifestation. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Apostle Peter was saying, I know I'm going to be leaving soon, dying. I want you to remember these things because we didn't just follow cunningly devised fables. These aren't wives' tales. These aren't stories. This is something that we this isn't something that we dreamed up, but we have seen and heard the audible and visible presence of God. We were with Jesus when he did this. He's saying all of these things to try and get people to validate and receive as authoritative everything he's been saying. But then he adds this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. He had just talked about how that he saw Jesus radiate light. He saw the glory cloud of God overshadow him. And he heard an audible voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. He had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He had seen Jesus open up Bartimaeus' blind eyes. He had seen Jesus take this man who was lame and uh, make him walk. He had seen all of these things and he was recounting all of this, saying this proves that what we've seen and heard is real. But then he comes back and he says, we have something better than all of this. What could be better than seeing and hearing the audible voice of God and the visible presence of God. What could be better than seeing Jesus perform all of these miracles? In verse 20 it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. And if you put all of this together, here's what Peter is saying. He says that we've got something better than a visible representation of God, something better than an audible 
voice from God, something better than all of the physical, tangible miracles, the most authoritative thing that we could possibly share with you to validate the truth is the Word of God. The Word of God is greater than any other way for you to hear from God. Therefore, the Word of God is the strongest, most powerful way that we have to counter our fears and our unbelief. Now that ought to be obvious. And yet, again, in my dealings with so many people, most people come and they just want you to put your arm around them. They want you to say something encouraging. They would like a little note from you. They would like this. They would like that. They've got the Word with them, but they don't. Really, they wouldn't say it this way, but they don't care what the Word says. I would like you to give me a Word. Would you come up and pray and give me a Word? Well, you've got tens of thousands of words right there under your arm, on your nightstand. Why don't you open it up and use this? The problem is most people don't honor the written Word of God, the way that they would honor a prophecy or a word of encouragement from a person or some audible sign or visible sign. I'm telling you, that's all backwards. And that's precisely the reason that we have so much doubt. You know, God will come at it from a lot of different ways. The Lord will meet us where our faith is. And God has spoken to many, many people through these external things, through signs and different things. And I am not against them. I know many people that have had them. And I believe that from what they've told me, it lines up with the Word. I don't doubt that that's God. I'm not saying that those things are wrong. But I'm just saying that if you are more insistent, more desirous for a sign, some audible voice, a visible representation, something miraculous that will help you, you know what? That's just a temporary fix. Those things don't last very long. Circumstances change. And Satan can come along and give you negative signs and and all of these kind of things. But if you would just go to the Word of God and make it to where the Word of God is the absolute authority and God was speaking to you through the Word, the Word will overcome any doubt that you've got. The Word will confirm everything that you need to know. And it is the highest and best way of hearing from God. Since I made this decision, and I recognize that the more sure word of prophecy... And if I had more time, I could turn over to John chapter 20 and tell you that there was one of Jesus' disciples, uh, Thomas, who got a report from the other disciples that Jesus was raised from the dead. But he said, unless I can see it with my eyes and put my finger into the print of the nails, I will not believe. In other words, unless it comes out of the spiritual and manifests itself in the physical, unless there is physical, tangible proof, I am not going to believe. That's the way most people are today. Well, finally, eight days later, Jesus showed up. Thomas was present this time. Jesus walked right over to him and knew what he had said, even though he hadn't been physically present. And he said, Thomas, put your finger into the print of my nail. Put your hand into my side and don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas fell on his face and began to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus looked at Thomas and he said, Thomas, because you saw You believe, yea, rather, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus put the greater blessing on believing because of the Word than believing because of physical experience. 
Now, I know that that is not exciting, some of you, because you, you look at the Word of God as being lifeless and dead and dry. That's because you haven't gotten sincere and serious enough to have the Holy Spirit quicken it to you. But I guarantee you the Word of God is alive. It is living. It's powerful. It is the most sure word of prophecy. There is a greater blessing. There's a greater anointing that would be released in your life if you would just take the truths of God's Word and take it and say, by faith I believe this is God speaking to me. I've had it revealed to me by the Holy Spirit and I don't have to have three goosebumps and two visions to confirm it. This is what God's Word says. If you would get that attitude and go to believing and basing your life on the Word of God, there is a greater anointing, a greater manifestation of faith through that than there is all of these other things that people pursue. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, that's powerful. And yet so many people have missed out on this. And yet this is what I'm telling you that God wants to do. He wants to bring you up to this higher level. The very reason that God may not have answered your pleas and your cries and your begging for a vision, for a dream, for God to send someone and call out your name and prophesy directly to you, the very reason that God may not have done that for you is because He loves you so much. He's not wanting to keep you on the bottom rung of the ladder. He's wanting you to take a step up higher and begin to start trusting Him. You know, there was an instance in 1978 when my wife and I and two boys, we went out to California to a West Coast Believers Convention with Kenneth Copeland. I was pastoring a little church at that time, and this was a major vacation for us. We pooled all the resources we had. We went out there, and I went there expecting to hear from God. And the Lord was speaking to me about making a change in my ministry. I'd always pastored churches up until that time. And the Lord was speaking to me about going out and starting to travel and minister much the way I do now. And I mean, it was a huge step of faith for me. And so I went out to this believer's convention really believing I was going to get a word from God. And I was wanting a prophecy. And even though there was probably 10,000 people or more at this convention, and we sat up in the balcony in the nosebleed section, I'm not even sure Kenneth Copeland could have seen us you know, from the uh, platform. We were so far away. But yet I was putting a draw on him and I was saying, I'm believing for a word. Oh God, give me a prophecy. And right in the midst of me praying and asking God for a prophecy, Kenneth Copeland started prophesying and he was standing on the stage and he had his finger out like this and it looked like he was pointing at me. Now again, there was 10,000 people in that auditorium. I was a long ways from him, but it looked to me like he was pointing right at me. And I was just shocked. I thought, it worked. God's speaking to me. And anyway, his prophecy was basically along the lines of just do what I've told you to do. I've told you to get up and go for it. I'm going to provide your needs. Take this step of faith. There's a change coming. You have to leave where you are and you have to go out into this promised land that God's given you. It was some powerful things and everything that Kenneth Copeland was saying was exactly word for word nearly what God had spoken in my heart. And I was just so excited. I thought it worked. God is speaking directly to me. And then at the end of the prophecy, he says, did you hear that, Ed? That's for you. And I looked down there and this man, Ed Dufresne, was standing down on the bottom. And it was actually him that Kenneth Copeland was prophesying to. I missed the very first part of that. And so 
When I heard him refer to Ed Dufresne and call his name, my heart just sank like, Oh God, I thought you were talking to me. And then the Lord spoke to me in my heart and he said, If that prophecy had been for Andrew Womack, would you have learned anything that I haven't already told you? Would you have gotten any new piece of information that I hadn't already revealed to you as you studied the Word and prayed? And I said, No. And he says, why don't you trust me instead of having to have all of these other things? Why don't you get to where my word is sufficient? It was actually a rebuke. And you know what? Based on that, I said, Father, that's it. I'm not going to have to have three confirmations. I know what you've said to me in my heart. And I made a decision. And right after that, we left that church and I started traveling and doing some things. And you know what? It was a major change of direction in my life. And uh, this illustrates the point that I'm making. Most of us aren't wanting to just take the Word. We're too insecure. We don't have confidence in God's Word alone and the Holy Spirit quickening it to us. And we want to have everybody come and get ten confirmations so that there's just zero doubt. That's not how it happens. The Word of God is a more sure word of prophecy than anything else you could ever get. If you would take God's Word, begin to meditate on it, let the Holy Spirit make direct application to your situation, and then act on it. That is the highest form of faith you can possibly have, is a faith that is based entirely on God's Word alone. Man, those are wonderful truths. And if you would take this and apply it to your life, it would transform you.